let's it's a little bit long, but let's stand and read this. It's uh, and I find them kind of interesting. I don't know if you do, but it is the word of God, so uh, it's profitable to read it, and uh, we'll try to make some sense out of all this stuff. But it, in one sense, you see, it's more of the same. It's, it's not there's unique stories, but but the overall accounts are the same about the, the sin or righteousness of these kings. But Second Samuel chapter fourteen. <clears throat> In the second year of Joash, the son of Jehoaz, or yeah, Jehoaz, the king of Israel, Amaziah, and you gotta make sure you pay attention because you've got Amaziah, you've got Ahaziah, you've got all these names that sound so much alike. Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, began to reign, and he was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoiada. Jehoiadim of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not like David his father. He did all the things as Joash his father had done, but the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings in the high places, and as soon as the royal power was firmly in his hand, he struck down the servants who had struck down the king his father. Remember, uh, his father uh, Joash was uh, a good king overall, but he kind of failed at the end and uh, kind of brought misery upon the nation. And some men decided to kill him, so he killed those. But he did not strike down uh, their fa- the father of these servants. Uh, verse six: He did not put to death the children of the murderers, according to what was written in the excuse me, the children, not the fathers, but their children, according to what was written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers, but each one shall die for his own sin. So he, as at this time, is obeying the Lord. He struck down 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt and took Selah by storm, which Selah is the, uh, what we, you probably know as Petra. Remember that, that city kind of carved in the side of the hill, of the stone where uh, Jews were uh fled to during the siege at 70 A.D. Um, so that's the Selah there by storm and called it Jothiel, which is the name to this day. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us look one another in the face. And uh, evidently here he's wanting to go to battle. And Jehoash, king of Israel, sent word to Amaziah, king of Judah, a thistle on Lebanon sent to a, to a cedar in Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son for a wife, and a wild beast of Lebanon passed by and trampled down the thistle. You have indeed struck down Edom, and your heart is lifted up. Be content with your glory and stay at home, for why should you provoke trouble so that you fall, you and Judah, with you? And of course, a thistle was basically trying to uh, make itself to be equal with the great cedar, and that's kind of the point of his little uh, uh, parable that he gave him and said, you're out of your league. And we'll deal a little bit more with what this uh, when we read over in Second Chronicles later on. But Amaziah would not listen, so Jehoash king of Israel went up, and he and Amaziah king of Judah faced each other in battle in Bethshemesh, which belongs to Judah, and Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his home. Then Jehoash king of Israel captured Amaziah king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, son of Ahaziah at Bethshemesh, and came to Jerusalem, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem for 400 cubits, 
from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate, and he seized all the gold and silver and all the vessels that were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house, also hostages, and he returned to Samaria. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoash, that what he did, and his might, and how he fought with Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the king of Israel? And Jehoash slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. And Jeroboam, his son, reigned in his places. Uh, he is known, of course, as Jeroboam II. Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Jehoash, son of Jehoaz, Jehoaz, king of Israel. Now the rest of the deeds of Amaziah, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish, but they sent after him to Lachish and put him to death there. So he died much like his father. And they brought him on horses, and they buried him in Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. And all the people of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He built Elath and restored it to Judah after the king slept with their fathers. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Judah, began to reign in Samaria. So now they're kind of going back up north to see how Jeroboam's going to fare. He reigned 41 years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo-Hamath to as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, which is Jonah, the, the, the prophet that we're familiar with, who was from Geth-Hafer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did and his might and how he fought and how he restored Damascus and Hamath to Judah and Israel, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles and the kings of Judah? And Jeroboam slept with his fathers and the kings of Israel and Zechariah his son reigned in his place. Alright, so maybe seated. So there you have uh, the next phase we want to look at. Um, just by way of review, we saw last week that the proclamation of God's word, we might add in one sense, obviously an adherence to that uh, word, is to be considered the strength of a people. Uh, it is a, a great blessing when the, the word of God is proclaimed and listened to and obeyed, right? And of course, we find ourselves in a situation today where that is a rarity and we're paying the price for that for sure. The Lord expects us to have a certain measure of zeal in the things of God. He doesn't accept apathy, and why should he? Because uh, we saw uh, we, several texts that talked about how that we are to serve the Lord with a whole heart, with the zeal. And it is this is, after all, our creator and our redeemer. So to... It, it, we can see it's a great, a great sin not to be excited about the things of God. And let's face it, our hearts aren't always excited about it. I'd like to think that everybody just got up just thrilled that it was church today, right? But I know that that's something we sometimes struggle with. But we should be excited 
there, there should be something in us that loves the things of God and hearing from God. And, and, and rightly so, because of who he is. And then no promise of God, whether blessings or judgment, will go unfulfilled. And that's something, that's something that we see often in, uh, in the word of God. But I think it bears pointing out that every time any God says he's going to do something, at some point the Bible always reminds us that he did that. That prophecy came true, that God doesn't forget. That's hugely important for us. So, you have here, um, as we read, especially when it comes to the northern kingdom and Jeroboam II, you have a situation where they, they're kind of an unusual situation. He's an evil king, but the country is restored basically to the splendor, and certainly in the land area, to where it was under Solomon. So it's a little strange. It was kind of like a, they're having, we might say, an Indian summer because in uh, three chapters we're going to see the fall. So it's just a, uh, it's just a few, uh, two, 20 or 30 years, and the, the country is going to fall to the Assyrians. But they have this time where they God blesses them gives him one last hurrah before it all falls apart. <clears throat> um, Amaziah starts off reasonably well in the southern kingdom, but he becomes arrogant and suffers a humiliating defeat and then meets a bloody end. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Jehoash is the king that defeated Amaziah, and after him is Jeroboam II. Um, in, so in that sense, he could almost be called Solomon II. Jeroboam II, in the sense that he was uh, following after the religious idolatry of Jeroboam, Solomon II, in that he restored the land to basically where it was under Solomon. So it was a very unusual thing that happened. Well, in first, verse 3, though, the first part of the chapter is that now familiar refrain of a king who was good, but not like David. And again, it, this is repeated over and over again. The Lord holds every king to a standard, just like he holds all of us to a standard, and, and for them it was David. And, and and again, what was special about David? We know that he had his problems, right? But the thing that, that he's looking at here is not that, well, that, that the standard was that, well, it's okay to cheat on your wife and, and not raise your kids well. That's not what he's talking about, obviously. The standard is that David served the Lord with a whole heart. He would not allow idolatry in the land. That was the key for them obeying the covenant and staying in the land. And this is, so that's really the standard that God was holding them to. And so in that sense, David is always used as a barometer for godliness. But it, it teaches us how God is looking at, at these things. There's a standard that he accepts, and he is keenly aware if we don't meet that standard. Now, we're not talking about the standard of that we must be perfect in Christ Jesus. We must have his righteousness imputed to us to be saved. Yes, that's true for justification. We're talking about in the sense of what God expects his people, how he expects his people to live. And it's not perfection. Otherwise, of course, we'd all be failing. But it is to have a heart that is devoted to him alone. Uh, there's no reason for us to be trusting in anything other than him, be given our love to anything other than him. We know that in this life that will never be done perfectly. But but it's not a, a, a standard that is above 
uh, a Christian to uh, have some measure of success in, right? To not be idolatrous. And so Amaziah comes to his father's level, but that's not where he needs to be, because you remember his father allowed idolatry in the land, and uh, Amaziah ends up doing the same thing. Um, so the standard that God expects of his people, I think, is reasonable. It's not perfection, but it's de- dedication to him alone. Some kings come close. Remember Asa, uh, we'll see some others. Hezekiah will be an example of this, where they are very similar to David, and, and that is pointed out to us. So <clears throat> it just reminds us, though, that the Lord doesn't is saying, well, you know, I'm looking at you as a church. I'm looking at you as a church in America. There might be some element of that, but the Lord is looking at each one of us. You have a standard. I have a standard that God holds me to, that he expects me to, that my heart to be pure before him and to worship him alone. He sees individuals, and I think something we can see here. There's never a time where we could say, that by now, God really doesn't expect much from these kings. They, It's just, you know, he's tried, they haven't listened, and so he kind of gives up. Until the very day the nations fall, he holds the kings, both north and south, to standards. And we see that because every time a king is mentioned, we either learn that they were like Jeroboam or how they compare to David. And so God doesn't change. And I think that's certainly a lesson that we see here. That uh, there's never a time in your life, there's never an age in your life, there's a situation in your life where God says, you know what, you get a pass. Why would we? Either we love the Lord with all of our heart or we don't. And uh, we are to express that and we are to be strong in trials and strong in temptation. And when we fail, we are to get right with the Lord. We are to accept correction. Uh, we, whatever we, we must do to get right, to repent and to be right with the Lord. And as long as we are doing that, then that's the standard I think the Lord holds us to. And I think that, that we can see that in the New Testament as well. Um, now, ultimately, we know that we don't measure up to Christ, and that's why we need a mediator. But we're talking about, in a practical sense, I think how the Lord looks at us in this life and, and what he expects of us. And there's a sense in which we do it with each other as well. Um, no wife demands perfection. Now, you know, that's maybe debatable, but, uh, um, but if you, if you, if a wife's describing her husband and she says, well, you know, he is a good provider, but He's not much of a companion. He, we don't have, we don't talk much. We don't have much of a relationship. Um, he's not much of a spiritual leader. It's really what she doesn't say more than what she does say. But what she's saying is that when it, on the things that count, he's not much of a husband. Oh, he provides. But I think few women, and, and of course we could, you know, reverse this and use different examples, but few women, as I said, are, ex- they're not after perfection. It's the things that count, right? It, it's the relationship. It is certainly a relationship with the Lord that uh, are, are important. And so what, when we read these about these kings, we sometimes read about their abilities and we read 
maybe how successful they were, like with Jeroboam II. We do have a one verse given to his um, uh, military uh, victories, as it were, in, in, in conquering the, these lands back from the enemy. But what it always focuses on is a relationship. Are they like Jeroboam or are they like David? That, that's the theme. God is telling us what he thinks about this, not what they've accomplished in life, in peripheral things. Not what kind of provider he was, but what kind of a Christian he was. So that should be our prayer for ourselves and for each other and for the church, that we don't just fulfill some duties, but that we fulfill the main duties that God has called us to do. You know, some churches, if we kind of apply this to a church, for instance, some churches see their duty as providing Sunday school and activities for the children, and that's kind of what they concentrate on. Um, others are content if they have a vibrant worship service with a, you know, good band and, and a good song service, and they, that's an indicator of success. Uh, there's certainly out there today that that's, uh, the churches that, that get numbers often just because of that, right? And uh, I was brought up in churches that saw success in numbers and, and a steady stream of people coming forward and to some degree getting baptized. They, it was Whether they ever saw them again was, that was never really an issue. It was always how many baptisms do you have this year? Uh, you know, that was always the main thing. Or, or how many professions of faith. And if you looked at him and say, well, say we had, we had a hundred, but, uh, well, where are they now? Well, none of them are here, or maybe one or two are here. And, well, that's what, that's what matters, right? And so it's the, the goals. Uh, God has told us, the church, to be at the pillar and support of the truth, where the saints are edified, and we are to be a light for the lost. And if we fail there, then what, then how good our Sunday school is, or our song service, uh, it's not really that important. Um, you know, whether we have a, a food pantry, it's all well and good if you want to have one of those, but that's not what we've been called to do, and that's not that's, that's not what you measure things by. We are to have a, gr- a relationship with the Lord and to be growing in, uh, uh, in in His image, and nothing. And without that, really, nothing. None of these other things matter. So. We see here that Amaziah kills his father's assassins, but he did not put their sons to death. And it, and it was a commonplace thing. As I said before, I think that shows that their, their, his heart was right, at least early on in his life. It was commonplace to kill the sons of anybody that you killed, if you killed their father, because, especially in ancient cultures, because you just expected when that kid grew up, uh, he was going to remember what you did, and, and he'd come after you. And that, so there's there's actually a Greek poet who wrote, "One who puts to death the father and allows the son to live is a fool," right? Because that's just the way things were, especially in an ungodly culture. But under the law, that as we it's mentioned there, it wasn't to happen. And so we see Amaziah early on doing what was right. Now let's turn over to Second Chronicles, though, and we'll see. We'll kind of have some of these things filled in that the. That our account doesn't have. Second Chronicles chapter 25. And, uh, let's read first of all the first eight verses. 
Amaziah was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. Gives his mother's name, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and yet not with the whole heart. And as soon as the royal power was firmly his, he killed his servants who had struck down his king, the father. But he did not put their children to death. It goes on to explain why. Then verse 5, Then Amaziah assembled the men of Judah, and he set them by fathers, houses under commander of thousands and of hundreds for all of Judah and Benjamin. He mustered those 20 years old and upward and found that there were 300,000 choice men fit for war, able to handle spear and shield. He hired also 100,000 mighty men, valor, men of valor, whom with from Israel for 100 talents of silver. But a man of God came to him and said, O king, do not let the army of Israel go with you, for the Lord is not with Israel, with all the, these Ephraimites. But go, act strong in battle. Why should you suppose that God would cast you down before the enemy? For God has power to help or to cast down. In other words, he says, okay, Amaziah, don't ask the northern tribes to help you. Uh, you trust the Lord, which is what he does. And he has a great victory. Verse 10, Amaziah discharged the army that had come to him from Ephraim. I guess he had already had some come. So he sends them away. And they became angry with Judah and returned home in fierce anger. So that might be part of why um, that led to this the later war with northern Israel. Nothing really safe for sure. But verse 12, the men of Judah captured another 10,000. 10,000 alive, and this is after he struck down the people there, and the, the men of Seir and all that in verse 11. And he took them to the top of a rock and threw them down from the top of the rock, and they all were dashed to pieces. So, right or wrong, that's how he uh, deals with these enemies of Edom. Verse 13, but the men of the army whom Amaziah sent back, not letting them go to him in battle, raided the cities of Judah from Samaria to Beth Haran, and struck down 3,000 people in the, and took much spoil, which is, again, so the men that he sent back to the northern tribes raided Israel while the king of Judah was busy with war. He killed 3,000 people. So you can understand now why Amaziah doesn't like this, and he's asking, you know, he wants war with the northern kingdom later on. But let's just read, starting in verse uh, 14. After Amaziah came from striking down the Edomites, he brought the gods, and this is where it gets weird. He brought the gods of the, of the men of Seir and set them up as his gods and worshipped them, making offerings to them. So clearly, you know, he had this prophet come from Yahweh, and, and clearly Yahweh has given him victory over these people. And so what does he do? Well, he takes their gods back with them and he worships them. The, the gods that are the people that he had just defeated. And you think, what goes through somebody's mind that you would do that? And of course, I think one reason might be because of the sensuality of Baal worship and these gods that they, Israel always struggled with. They, they always wanted to serve God, but also have their cake and eat it too, as it were. And it very well could be that. Um. So, therefore, verse 15, the Lord was angry with Amaziah and sent him a prophet who said to him, Why have you sought the gods of a people who would not deliver their own people from the land? 
But as he was speaking, the king said to him, Have we made you a royal counselor? Stop. Why should you be struck down? So the prophet stopped, but said, I know that God has determined to destroy you because you have done this and have not listened to my counsel. So that's Amaziah clearly it, it, it has turned a corner spiritually and even threatens the life of this um, prophet. So in verse 17, we what we read before, he uh, he takes counsel with who knows who and uh, wants to fight Israel. And that's probably why, because of what the, his men did. And so, verse 18, Joash, the king of Israel, sent word to Amaziah, the king of Judah, and it gives him this uh, parable about the thistle of Lebanon, the cedar. And uh, he doesn't listen. And he, and he says, you're, you, don't, you don't need to fight me because you'll, you're just going to bring problems upon yourself, which is exactly what happened. And so, if we skip down to verse 20, but Amaziah would not listen, for it was God in order that he might give him to the hand of his enemy. So the Lord, this is how the Lord is going to punish Amaziah for, uh, I think, the way, he, perhaps the way he treated some of these Edomites and throwing them off a cliff for apparently no reason, but certainly uh, because of his idolatry, um, because he had fought, sought the gods of Edom. So Joash, the king of Israel, went up, and he and Amaziah, the king of Judah, faced each other in battle and at Bethshemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel. Every man fled to his home. Make sure. Okay, let's keep reading. And Joash, the king of Israel, captured Amaziah, the king of Judah, the son of Joash, the son of Ahaziah of Bethshemesh, at Bethshemesh, and brought him to Jerusalem, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem for 400 cubits, from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate, he seized all the gold and silver, all the vessels that were found in the house of God in the care of Obed-Edom. He seized also the treasures of the king house also, hostages, and returned to Samaria. Then we, uh, then we read here, of course, what we, I think most of this we had already read before. So it just gives you a little bit more insight into what happens. Um, and so, again, the, the obvious thing there is him worshiping the gods of a people that the gods were unable to deliver them from his hand. And uh, he pays the ultimate price for that. And I think it's, a, it's an example of why the standard that God expects and holds him to isn't that big of a deal. Just worship me alone. Leave, leave those, destroy those idols. That you that in Edom, and all would have been well. But of course, you know that's sin. That just shows you the grip of sin over us. And so, as you read of the upheaval of these two countries, we can uh, maybe read Amos four to get a, a little uh, answer to what's going on here. So, if you want to turn over to Amos. Amos is just after uh, Hosea, I think. Hosea, Joel. Uh, after Joel. Right, yeah. And let's just turn to chapter 4. Because all these, these, these verses, the reason, one reason why I read these kind of verses is because it reminds us that this isn't, that God is not being an unjust God when these would he send such great affliction on these people for their sin? 
And notice here, this is Amos who lived during this time, by the way. Let's start reading Amos chapter 4 and verse 6. I gave you to cleanness of teeth in all your cities. Now, what he's saying there is not that I gave you good dental health during this time. Um, when do you, when are you, when are your teeth dirty? After you eat. So, if you have clean teeth, he said, basically saying famine. And lack of bread in all your places. Yet, what? You did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you, and when there was yet three months to be harvest, and I would send rain to one city and send no rain to another. One field would have rain, and a field on it that did not have rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you would not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees, your olive trees, the locust devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses and made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you do not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as the Lord overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you do not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. And so... You know, sometimes we see those signs around, you know, prepare to meet your God, taken right from the Bible. And, and it's saying uh, that we're all going to stand before him. And, and, of course, the point there is that if Israel had anything, if they knew anything, it was that while they served the Lord, they were protected from their enemies. They had plenty to eat. Everything was good. And when they didn't, God would send these things. And he said up front he was going to do that. And... It happens, and yet they will not turn away from these false gods, from these idols. Again, and, and we could, you know, you can, debatable as to why that held such a sway over them, but I think it's probably the sensuality uh, of the, that kind of worship that they said, you know, they were willing to suffer whatever in order to have it. But whatever, that's what happened. So, you know, they're just ignoring the warnings of God. And it only means it's worse is yet to come. And when people and nations suffer because of ungodliness, they only have themselves to blame. And, and so, uh, during Jeroboam's reign, which God allowed to prosper militarily, he sends them, though, Jonah, Hosea, and Amos, and he gives them a, a short time of prosperity, and they, it doesn't matter. It does no good. So it's no surprise when we get to chapter 17 and we see what happens, it's no surprise. And we might ask the question, why would under such a wicked king as Jeroboam II, would Israel be allowed to have a lot of prosperity like this? And I think verse 26 reminds us why, tells us why. It's because God is giving, he, he's, a God, he's a merciful God. He's a God who does not want to bring destruction upon these people. He they have been sent to be a light to the world. Uh, he wants them to, to be an example of what it is to worship the right God. He's given them every opportunity, but they don't listen. So verse 26, uh, you know, reminds us that the Lord saw the affliction of Israel is very bitter, and uh, there is no one to help Israel, and he gives them basically one last opportunity. 
and they don't take it. Um, <clears throat> now, humanly speaking, we know we don't. Well, the only way we know what's going on during some of this is because of outside history. Uh, we learn that um, Assyria during Jeroboam's reign was occupied with other nations. Syria had been destroyed by, it says, Zachar of Hamath, which I'm not sure who if he was Israelite or not, but either way, he, he kind of raises up and helps defeat Syria. Uh, and there was peace between the north and the south at this point. They also, you know, the northern Israel... Uh, was uh, in the kind of in the middle of trade routes. So as long as there could be a measure of peace, prosperity was no big deal, very easy to come by. And so what we're seeing there is not that, well, coincidentally, these there's peace here, and so they're able to have a time of prosperity. No, what we will take from this is that the Lord is working all these things out in Assyria, in Syria, and so forth, to give them this time of peace for, for you know as as one last opportunity and so we're not to take away this idea that well we look at life coincidentally these things just happen to happen the Lord is always behind everything um, and so we're being taught that prosperity in no way means though that you're right with the Lord without doubt it led to uh, to weakness prosperity often leads to weakness. I think in America, you think about the prosperity that we've enjoyed and how it has not helped the church at all. Not that there might be other factors, but prosperity tends to make us think that everything's okay. I'm okay. The Lord's happy with me because we, we have that legalistic mentality where we think that when everything's good, the Lord's happy, and when, and when things go bad, he's upset with me. And, and there's that mentality. And... Um, but I think America is a good example of what happens with, you know, with, with, when prosperity is given and yet we are not faithful to maintain a relationship with the Lord. Outward blessing isn't always the whole story. I was reading about, uh, Adolf Hitler who used to, uh, have these newsreels with these massive parades. I'm sure we've all seen it. And it just people are, you know, they're standing on the side, they're waving the flag and, it, it looks like the, the country supports Hitler. But in reality, most German people really didn't like Hitler at all. But he would actually import, you know, thousands of stormtroopers to march in these parades to make it look like he had much, much more support than he actually had. <clears throat> and so, uh, outward what it, what it might something might look outwardly, uh, can we can be fooled? That's why we have to uh, see how to interpret all this by the word of God. And so Jonah it says in verse twenty five, one of the things he did was predict that the Lord was going to send a time of blessing. And again, that should have been a big red flag, if you will, that it happens when God said it was going to happen, and. And yet, that doesn't seem to hold any water with them. And so, uh, you just can't divorce the sovereignty of God, though, from what's going on in the news and what's going on around us. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, 
to, just to kind of sum it all up, the, the, what what we're I think to get from all this is that we're reminded that in these accounts, God is not teaching us about history so much as theology. That's why we're reading about things that took place in history, but the men are always assessed by the Lord by whether they look more like David or more like Jeroboam, right? That's that's what we read about. Jeroboam, one verse is given to Jeroboam's success, but uh, what we're always told right off is how, where they were spiritually. And uh, <clears throat> we saw that with Omri. Remember, Omri had uh, had a the, the father of Ahab brought northern tribes into a great time of prosperity, but that's hardly mentioned at all. But we do read about is his sin and his spiritual condition. <clears throat> and so the point is that we need to be concerned about how the Lord thinks about us, and not about what outwardly it might look like and what we're doing. And you might be successful in every physical way possible, but that means that's going to mean nothing later on. I was reading about a missionary who was in the Sudan some years ago, and most of the people certainly he's having a meeting, and most of the people are naked, or at least you know most all the children are, and some of the the adults are, and that was just you know the situation that they were in. And here, though, what caught his eye was a man man walks in who's completely naked, but he's got a woman's corset on his head. And he's walking around all proud of himself because he has found this woman's corset who is thrown out, discarded at some point. And he he, he thinks it's pretty or fancy, and he sticks it on his head, and he's walking around. And he doesn't realize, of course, the shame of being naked and what he's doing. He's proud of himself because there's a stupid corset on his head, right? <clears throat> to him, it was a great treasure. But to the missionary, of course, he, all he sees is, is this, this shameful situation. Very sad. And, and, the, and the point there of that story is that it's a reminder of how God sees us. We get a, you know, a, a little on our bank account, or, you know, physically we might be, you know, good looking or strong or healthy, whatever. And we start to feel pretty good about ourselves. We walk around like we're somebody and we fail to trust in the Lord and we don't consider our souls. You know, we, and, and uh, we, we forget that the Lord is not impressed by any of that. All he sees is our shame. The shame of sin. And that's why Isaiah could say, all our righteous are as filthy rags, because the, the, the point is that we're sinners, and that's gotta be taken care of. So, um, there's only two things that we're gonna take with us when we stand before the Lord. That's either the shame, as we stand before Him in, in a very real sense naked, or we're going to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And uh, all that we took glory in before and were made us so proud of ourselves uh, is not going to be there. And uh, so I think the, these uh, accounts kind of remind us of some of that. Um, I know none of us are trusting in your achievements at the expense of the righteousness of Jesus Christ because... Uh, certainly you've been taught enough from scripture to know that that will get you nowhere. 
And we want to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. All right. Well, any questions or comments as we close? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love to us this day. And we pray that you might bless us as we open up your word and consider, Lord, these themes. May we uh, learn from the lessons that some have uh, rejected. And not make the same mistakes. Lord, you've given us so many uh, ways of instruction in your word. And we have no excuses for not honoring you above all things. And uh, most of all, Lord, may we run to Christ for our righteousness and for our only hope in his finished work. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.